Good afternoon. We're on. Um, welcome to Hudson and uh, to this event on um, the recent uh, Kurdistani-Iraqi um, <coughs> referendum and what it means for, for the region. We have uh, an excellent uh, panel up here today with um, two of um, my Hudson colleagues. Eric Brown here to my, who is a security expert on, on Middle Eastern affairs, who has followed uh, what happened in Kurdistan, Iraqi Kurdistan, since 2005, been uh, back and forth. We just recently, both of us came back from a, a trip where we went there during the, the referendum and got both to speak to a lot of sort of uh, Kurdish uh, top-level officials, but also to, uh, to witness the referendum, which we'll speak about shortly. Mike Pregent, um, who comes from an intelligence background, has a long track record in the region, particularly in Iraq, also recently came back from our trip further afield than us, was in the Mosul area to see uh, how the fight against uh, Daesh, ISIL, had been uh, carried out and what were the, the next steps. Um, I myself, Jonas Prado-Plesner, is a new addition to Hudson, came over recently from, uh, used to be with the Embassy of Denmark here in uh, Washington, D.C. So this is my first uh, panel here and, uh, and really uh, happy uh, to be here together with my, uh, uh, with my colleagues. We're going to have, I think you're on the side, a couple of images as well from our, so when you, when you see those, those are from either Eric's and, and my trip to, um, to Kurdistan or from uh, Michael Peachin's trip to, uh, to the Mosul area. So um, when we come to the Q&A, you can add those into what was going on, although of course a lot of them should be self-explanatory as I now see the, the Kurdish uh, flag up there during the, the referendum. Uh, let me also mention that some of you that came in got a, a working paper that I had sort of um, did on um, our trip to um, uh, Kurdistan. It's, if you haven't gotten it, I think it's out by the reception when you, uh, when you leave. So let me uh, kick off with talking a little bit about the independent referendum and, and, and uh, how we saw that. Um, maybe first with a sort of little anecdote that when we left one of the polling stations, um, a Kurdish man waved at us and said, bye-bye, Iraq. And that, of course, uh, isn't that easy um, as just having the referendum. As you know, the, the Baghdad is, is strongly opposed. The neighbors are strongly opposed. Uh, most of the international community was, was strongly opposed. So sort of the, the Kurdistani uh, independence uh, re referendum faced sort of strong resistance from the, from the beginning. Um, as you know, the 93 voted in favor of, uh, of independence and with a quite sort of large uh, turnout, 73%. Um, and, and as you can see from the images here on the side, we are, of course saw the, the, the Kurdish flags all over the city and everywhere we, we went. We have one here in, in, in front of us uh, as well with the, the sparkly sun um, in the middle. What we uh, witnesses, as I would underline, we were not election observers. We went out to f four polling stations. We tried to go to different areas. So we were both in a Christian area inside Abil. We went to, um, to a poorer area, to a, to a richer neighborhood to get a little bit of sort of different flavor of. Um, but what we saw seemed sort of fair and credible. The ballot was in, in, in the four um, different uh, languages. So you can both have it in, in Kurdish, in Arabic, in. Um, Assyrian and in, in Turkish, so that all both ethnic and um, linguistic minorities were able to um, to understand the question. Um, and 
Then let me talk a little bit about some of the reaction. As you know, um, the U.S. Uh, government opposed a referendum. The sort of the whole ISIL coalition came out against it. One of the reasons was that this could sort of detract from um, the effort that um, the Kurdish forces, the Peshmergas, are doing um, in um, fighting together with the Iraqi security forces. Um, the continued presence of Daesh. All of our interlocutors there really assured us this was not the case, um, that the Kurdish uh, contribution to the fight against us was ongoing. As we were in the, um, in the region, there were meetings around Harija, around the military planning, which has since uh, gone on, and the Kurds has um, continued sort of their assistance to that fight. So that was, of course, something that was very important for Kurdish interlocutors during the, our meetings to sort of tell us that, um, bring back that message that uh, the fight against that wasn't diminished because of the, um, the referendum. And that seemed to be um, um, uh, the case as well. Uh, and um, um, another element that uh, a lot of uh, interlocutors underlined to us was um, how Daesh's growth in uh, Iraq was really linked to sort of the, the very sectarian politics uh, in the country um, and uh, particularly and um, and I think one who actually put it this way which I thought was was sort of telling also for reconciliation towards the future the Kurds have the Peshmerga, uh, the Shiites have the PMF, the Popular Mobilization Forces that we will talk more about and the Sunnis had ISIL so a little bit of saying this was sort of the the, the vision inside, and of course now that um, ISIL is, is being eradicated, it also means it puts a large question about how do you actually um, do sort of Sunni uh, reconciliation um, and make sure that if there is a if Iraq is going to sort of uh, function fully and heal again, that that the reconciliation t uh, takes place. Um, I could also then just talk a little bit about the disputed territories where we went as well. We went both to, to Kirkuk uh, the day after the referendum, so we weren't there and, and, and talked to people. And we also went out in the Nineveh Plains to some of the Christian uh, villages. Um, it's clear that out here, um, the, I don't think the sort of the turnout was as large. You didn't see the uh, the blue fingers, which are sort of the blue inked fingers, uh, in the same way as you did all over a bill. Um, and, and some felt we just spoke to minorities, um, said, well, this wasn't either sort of um, something that they necessarily felt included in. But a lot did also, uh, did also vote, I, I think that's, that's fair to say. One, one answer, this is just anecdotal, but we got back when we asked, because we kept asking the same question, would you like to be um, out in disputed territory, part of uh, of Iraq or of of an independent Kurdistan, and the answer we often um, got back, or one I I got back, I thought I wanted to share with all of you, was oh I would rather wanna wanna leave and go to the U.S. or to Europe, and you're like yes okay that was <laughs> it wasn't what I asked but that's a fair that's a fair answer, so. Um, so that was a little bit of my sort of initial panorama over the referendum and the referendum day. And um, I'll now turn over to um, Eric um, to continue on, because a lot of outside commentators, and I think, believed that this referendum would never be pulled off, that the, the Kurds 
internally inside Iraqi Kurdistan are so divided. The parliament hadn't met in 22 months before, so a lot of people thought, okay, they're not going to be able to agree on actually doing a referendum and and having that sort of unity. That wasn't the, the case, but there's still a lot of internal splits that it's really sort of uh, your expertise and, and some of the things that we talk to people as well when we are on the ground. Yeah. Um, as Jonas had said, the U.S., and as all of you know, the U.S. had opposed the referendum, and I think that that was a big mistake. Um, the U.S. had an opportunity to re remain agnostic, if you will, on the question of independence, while still recognizing the right of the Kurds as a region within Iraq um, to conduct this political process going forward. I think in opposing the referendum, we missed a real opportunity to advance political stability within Iraq and, in fact, across the greater Levant. We opposed it on the basis of, I think, faulty analysis and bad information. There was a sense that we had leverage over the Kurdish leadership, despite the fact that they had been talking about this referendum and about their desire um, to push for not only greater autonomy, but also independence for years, in fact. Um, there was also a sense, as Jonas had mentioned, that Kurdish divisions, which have come to be much, much more pronounced, particularly since the war with the Islamic State began, uh, that these would prevent the Kurds from conducting an uh, orderly and peaceful referendum going forward. All of those predictions turned out to be uh, a mistake, um, grossly so. Um, the parliament, as, as Jonas had mentioned, uh, had in fact uh, not met for two years. There was indeed and still is a rolling political crisis within the governing arrangement, which we call the Kurdish regional government. KDP and PUK have underlying and very bitter tensions between them, and, and that's just between those two main parties that I haven't said anything yet about some of the smaller parties and then the new spin-offs that we've seen uh, appear in recent months out of the PUK. Um, there were, in addition to all of this, as I mentioned, since the rise of ISIS, um, uh, the state building which had been going on in Kurdistan from roughly 2003 up until 2014, that had ground to a halt. Um, enormous economic and other sorts of humanitarian pressures were being brought to bear on the Kurdish <clears throat> regional government, and this was exacerbating tensions between the various parties. Uh, there was also an overwhelming concern that Iran, um, as is its wont, would attempt to play a spoiler in the lead-up to the election and would seek to exacerbate a lot of these internal tensions. But again, as I said, all of those predictions turned out to be false. Uh, at the very last moment, um, uh, uh, a lot of the parties who had uh, initially demonstrated some reluctance in allowing the in, in supporting the referendum came full circle. Uh, the Islamic Party, uh, many of the splinters of PUK, and in fact the PUK itself appeared with President Barzani to support the referendum process. Um, uh, and uh, uh, you know, just two days before the referendum, President Barzani had appeared at a mass gathering in Suleimania. Uh, and it was very clear then that PUK was going to support this. Um, what happened afterwards, as Jonas had mentioned, was a very orderly, exceptionally peaceful, uh, and generally, I think, quite competent, at least as far as we had observed, um, uh, political referendum. Uh, the turnout was stronger in some areas than in others. 
but the turnout was overwhelming, and it was overwhelming in support of beginning negotiations with Baghdad in pursuit of of, in pursuit of fundamentally changing Kurdistan's uh, relationship with Baghdad going forward. Um, one of the Kurdish officials that we spoke to said, this referendum, rather than being a non-binding referendum, which was how KRG had presented it prior to the referendum taking place, is in fact a binding referendum. The Kurdish leadership feels that it has a mandate going forward to articulate and to realize what they see as being the will of the peoples of South Kurdistan, um, and we should expect that to be the case. Um, there is no doubt that President Barzani and the KDP in particular come out from this much strengthened than they were before. Uh, the Kurds themselves are much, much more unified. Um, uh, the referendum itself had an effect of dissipating and I think of lessening some of the divisions between the various Kurdish parties. Um, the task ahead, however, uh, is going to uh, revolve around whether or not the Kurdish leadership is going to be able to take this political momentum and actually uh, and channel it into the much more difficult work of building up governing institutions within, within the Kurdish region. I think going forward, the U.S. Um, needs to do what it can to align with this effort and to see the advance of self-government within the Kurdish region as within our own strategic and national security interest. We've consistently failed to do that in the past. I would say that while we talked and uh, wanted to support um, the realization of a federal Iraq from 2003 and found willing Kurdish partners on the ground uh, who, who wanted to work with us. Our policy over the course of the decade plus remained very, very Baghdad-centric, and we failed at important junctures to embrace uh, uh, opportunities within Kurdistan as well as in the Sunni Arab areas to shape a more favorable balance of power within Iraq that would have allowed a true federalism to work. <clears throat> now, um, the two options on the table going forward is, in fact, uh, true independence for the Kurds. Um, and, but the Kurds themselves will also say that in their open negotiations with Baghdad, they're open to look uh, as well at a potential confederal relationship, a true confederal relationship in, the, in which the Kurds have full autonomy and sovereignty over their region. Uh, and, but will still enter into uh, 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 a meaningful relationship with Baghdad on questions of foreign policy, among other things. Anyway, the United States, I think, really must seize upon <clears throat> this opportunity um, and respect uh, the results of this referendum and seek to uh, help our Kurdish friends and allies on the ground to build up the governing institutions that they will require to secure uh, their, their political aspirations going forward. Pass it to you. Yeah, I mean, one of the things you, you covered precisely what's going to go on in, in, in the dialogue now. We don't know when it started. We don't know whether Baghdad will be, uh, be willing really to enter into to dialogue. As, as I think one of interlocutors said to us, you don't taste the soup at the same temperature as it's it's cooked uh, as a Kurdish proverb of saying they knew there would have to be some time before you could actually get back to um, to uh, to dialogue another thing that was also uh, on the table not that anybody uh, wanted it or mostly wanted to avoid it was of course the question of, of conflict um, not just with Baghdad but just as much with um, uh, so the Hash al-Shabi the, the, the Iranian, mostly Iranian-backed uh, militia, 
and how particularly in, in the disputed area where I'll give my own uh, example and then I'll hand it over to, um, to Mike Pregent. Uh, we were out in, uh, in this um, small Christian village of Al-Kush out on the Nineveh uh, plains and met with uh, a couple of young men, young Christian Peshmergas that were defending their, uh, their local uh, village and uh, church. But they explained that several of their other um, uh, young men from the village had actually joined a sort of Christian militia as part of the Hassan Shabi and were fighting with that. And so that also, I think, shows in this whole picture how difficult it is for, for other minorities, Christian, you see these out in, that can get very squeezed in, in some of these uh, conflict, which refers back to the answer I, I gave in my initial talk of how uh, one replied, I would rather uh, be in the US than, than either part of uh, Iraq or Kurdistan. So that whole sort of squeeze and how Iran plays an increasing role uh, through its proxies uh, in the region is, is really your big thing, uh, Mike. So I would turn it to you and say, is there gonna be conflict with Iranians? Well, here's, here's what we know right now. The Hawija operation is, is currently ongoing and it's expected to culminate this weekend. And the next phase, based on what the Ashayish is hearing in Kirkuk and the vicinity of Ouija, what our American forces are hearing, what NGOs are hearing, e even NGOs that are there to provide medical aid to children are hearing, get out, the hospital shabi are getting ready to move on Kirkuk. So these, these may be warnings, indicators, this may be an alarmist position, but this is consistent with what Shia militia leaders have said the last two years. Badal Dash, you guys are next. And uh, we've, we've heard it. So I, I've been visiting the region. I, I come into Erbil and I move throughout the Nineveh Plains. Uh, I've been to, to Bashika. I've been to, been to Mosul. And in each case, you'll hear ISIS is easy. The real problem will be the, the Shia militias, the Hashid al-Shabi. And we're not talking about the Sistani volunteers. One of the photos you, you see is a Hashid al-Shabi checkpoint in Mosul. There's a, there's a Yahusain flag. There's a, a, another militia flag. Uh, there are two, two gentlemen there at the, at the checkpoint. One is a Sistani volunteer. We need to separate Sistani volunteers from Badr Khor, Kitab Hezbollah, and, and uh, Asab Ahl Haq. So we spoke to both of them, and one hadn't been paid for four months. That's a Sistani volunteer. He wants to be the Badr Khor guy. The Badakor guy had a nicer uniform, had a cooler patch, had an AK-47. The Sistani volunteer had a mishmash of uniforms and a pistol that he took from an ISIS fighter he said he killed in Mosul. So <clears throat> you're looking at this, these militias, but it's not the Hashid al-Shabi again. Um, so some people confuse me as an analyst. I'm not an analyst. I'm a veteran of the Iraq war. I spent five years there. And then I was an intelligence officer with the Defense Intelligence Agency. I worked for General Petraeus and Ordierno. And my specific task when I worked for H.R. McMaster, when he worked for Petraeus, was to assess the level of Iranian influence in Iraq's military and in their intelligence services. And we found that it was rampant. And we presented a, an alarmist report to General Petraeus in 2007 and continued to do that uh, after the surge to General Ordierno and after that General Austin that there is a process that's taking place in, in Iraq's military. And it's the, 
It's DDR, but not in the traditional sense. So it's not demobilizing, disarming, and reintegrating. It's actually taking militias and bringing them into the Iraqi army, where they still get a paycheck. And at the time, it was in 2007, it was still Jaysh al-Mahdi. They could come in the military and they would still receive a paycheck. But Badakor, somehow, we had picked Badakor as the pragmatic, responsible militia. And because Badakor has been so sensitized to, to U.S. advisors and U.S. Uh, contractors who are now training Iraqi forces, everyone will admit, yeah, Badakor is everywhere. Of course, Badakor is in the Ministry of Interior. Of course, Badakor is in the MOD, the Ministry of Defense. That, that's an issue. Just because it's known and just because it's common and just because we've been sensitized to it, we shouldn't forget that Badakor is Qasem Soleimani's premier established militia force in Iraq, and they control the MOI. Uh, we gave a brief uh, panel here uh, last week on the Iranian land bridge. And that Iranian land bridge, the RGC land bridge, uh, going into Syria and into Lebanon in order to strategically threaten Israel at some point, will be facilitated, will be aided by the Iraqi military. And there are two, two trains of thought here. For, for the last year, maybe the last three years, I've said I'm a, I'm a one Iraq guy. I believe that Iraq needs to be together. And I, I would often say it's like an iPad. If you drop it on the floor and it breaks into three pieces, it doesn't work. I'm no longer a one Iraq guy because I've been warning for the last three years that our ISIS strategy is actually handing over Iraq to Iran. But if I was honest with myself, and I, I've talked about this as well, we actually facilitated this handover during the surge. It was going on under our noses then. We basically took a, uh, an Iraqi military, at least the areas along the Shia sectarian fault lines uh, in Baghdad, Diyala, Salah Din, and further south, it was, it was a 95% Shia force when Petraeus was there in 2005. It was 55% Shia, 45% Sunni. And now you have an Iraqi military where you cannot find a Sunni company, a Sunni battalion, or a Sunni brigade. And if you don't know what that means, that means you can't find 500 Sunnis in one unit in the Iraqi army or 500 Kurds in the Iraqi army. The Peshmerga is completely operating outside of the Iraqi military. The... So my recent, recent trip to Mosul, I'll wrap, it, I'll wrap it up here. I went to get my mind changed because I, I, I listened to my colleagues from, from Brookings and from the Washington Institute of Near East uh, Peace, and they have a different view of Iraq than I do. They say there's a rule of law, the military is not sectarian, there's a unity government, and all is okay. <laughs> the problem is there is only two prob three problems, ISIS, Qatab Hezbollah, and AAH. And I've even heard some of them say, and Case Ghazali is really not that bad anymore. And if you don't know who Case Ghazali is, he's the man who, uh, who uh, ran a kidnapping operation at the request of Qasem Soleimani to kidnap five Americans to trade them for four IRGC captives in Erbil, the Erbil Four for the American Five. The kidnapping event went wrong. They ended up executing four Americans in the back of pickup trucks while they were bound. And the uh, fifth, fifth soldier, uh, in an attempt to try to save his comrades' lives, dived on a grenade, and he was uh, awarded the Silver Star after he died doing that. That's who Case Ghazali is. Case Ghazali is also the same guy a year ago who said, I cannot wait to kill U.S. special operators after we kill ISIS. I cannot wait to do these things. And we dismiss a lot of this talk. Oh, that's just rhetoric. They're just saying that. 
Well, if you can be offended by a Trump tweet, you sure as hell should be offended by a case Ghazali threat to American forces, especially in Iraq. So I went there to get my, my mind changed. So I went to the Nineveh Operations Center to visit General Najim al-Jabouri. And you can see what my colleagues see. You can see a professional Iraqi military working with a coalition. But you have to ignore the room full of Iranian advisors to the right. And I saw them. They were wearing uh, sanitized gray uniforms. They looked at me and they said, I know who you are. And I said, when al hamam, which is where's the restroom? <laughs> and I went, I went to the restroom. Um, you can see these things. And, uh, you know, I, I think the Kurdish referendum is very important. And I can't say it better than Ambassador Crocker said it. He said it, what, I think this early this week. He said, we went too hard against this because we basically signaled to Iran, to Ankara, to Baghdad, that you can use your military to, to punish this vote. And we've seen the Iranians move on KRG positions along the Iranian-Kurdish border. We've seen the same thing with Turkish forces as well as Iraqi forces that are moving along KRG checkpoints uh, between Turkey and Iraq. My concern is that somehow Baghdad believes they have a green light to use Hashim al-Shabi and conventional Iraqi military to retake Kirkuk by force. And that should be a red line. It has to be a red line. That has to be signaled now that the U.S. will not tolerate that. The U.S. US will not allow that. Um, as a former intel officer, uh, in, and we've worked with raids against al-Qaeda, high-value targets in 05, where we used Kurdish intel to get them. Uh, the best intel you'll hear from special operators is intel provided by the Peshmerg and Asayish. The best special operator operation forces are also the 2007 force. A lot of people forget this. Iraqi special operations forces were about 70% Peshmerga at the time. And then Maliki brought them under his officer, the commander in chief, purged the Kurds, fired the Kurdish commander, and replaced it with Shia loyalists. And when they didn't perform the same way, he brought back the Kurdish commander uh, and put him in charge of the ISAF. Our force is now working with the ISAF that Maliki created, just because I think it's Gawari is his name. Uh, is still there doesn't mean it's the same force. We need to know what what Baghdad is now, and we more importantly we need to remember the ally we have in the Kurds. Remember, it's NGOs, the United Nations, are 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 targeting our, our our best joint special operations forces are operating out of the Kurdish region to be able to go after high value targets in Syria and Iraq. There's a reason people pick this part of Iraq. And, uh, and one thing that you said struck me, and you said when you were leaving, and this was the 10-hour window where the window to get out of Kurdistan is closing for people to leave because uh, Baghdad's getting ready to take over the airports, was that you saw a lot of faces that you'd seen. I'll let you tell the story, but to me, that, that it was striking in that there's a sense of we've, we've, made, the, we've made a mistake here by, by not taking an agnostic approach, and we've signaled to... Iran and Baghdad to do something. But more importantly, uh, we didn't listen to the Kurds when they, when they have told us over the last three to four years that we continue to lose leverage with Baghdad each day, and we're ceding that leverage to Iran. And, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a Brett McGurk fan. I'm sure he's a great American. But he's the only man to be able to do a 180 three times and not be figured out. You're supposed to be caught after you do a 180 twice. I think he, he failed here. He told Baghdad he could stop the Kurdish vote. He told the U.S. he could stop the Kurdish vote. He told Tehran he could stop the Kurdish vote. 
They told Ankara he could stop the Kurdish vote, and the Kurds knew that we had no leverage with Baghdad, and there was no reason to listen to us tell them to stop, and we'll help you fix this. We'll act as a guarantor when we haven't the last decade, and we continue to make this promise. I'll stop there. One observation just to reinforce something that Mike said. Um, the lack of uh, the opposition to the Kurdish referendum from the U.S. Uh, not only hurts the Kurds and damages their position and their security, it has also weakened the position of those people in Baghdad and elsewhere in the southern parts of Iraq uh, who seek to limit Iran's influence in their part of the country. Why? Um, well, Iran, too, has opposed the referendum. And from the perspective, at least according to a number of folks that we spoke to from the South, um, the perspective is, is that the United States has come to some sort of condominium with Iran and with the expansion of Iranian power into the country, particularly into Baghdad and into the western parts of the country. And the fact that we both have opposed the referendum is seen as being uh, the United States being largely permissive of this. Um, changing the perceptions on the ground is going to be vital going forward. And the first way in which we need to do that, I think, is to reverse our policy and to recognize the referendum for what it was. On that, though, let me tease out for, uh, from both of you, I mean, in the sense that the US's primary objective in Iraq, Syria, is to destroy ISIL, Daesh. So, um, if the Kurdish referendum actually heightens chances of a conflict with uh, with Iran, is that necessarily in in the U.S. interest? Well, it's interesting with the with the uh, the argument that the Kurdish referendum somehow is a slap in the face to Americans who've lost their lives in Iraq, and also hurts the the war on ISIS. To the first part, I would say the the handover, the real slap in the face to veterans who served in this war and the blood and treasure lost is, is the handover of Iraq to Iran. The testament to our sacrifice would actually be supporting a independent Kurdistan, or at least supporting this referendum. The, the war against ISIS, the argument made that if the Kurdish referendum goes forward, it'll hurt the war on ISIS. Actually, if we simply would have supported the Kurdish referendum, Hashim al-Shabi would only be focused on Hawija. They would only be focused on ISIS. The Iraqi military would only be focused on ISIS. We're actually seeing this kind of uh, mission creep with this current fight on ISIS. It's, it's ISIS and. It's Hawija and Peshmerga positions. It's Hawija and KRG checkpoints. So they're, they're not related. And, and, and at the end of the day, if anybody saw the pictures of, of Iranian tanks on the border with Iraq, they're, they're T-55s and T-60s. They're old Russian tanks. We, got, we have to call out Iran for what it is. It's, it's not this strong military force. It's Quds Force is something completely different. And in, in Iran, five years from now, if they continue to, to violate uh, the technical um, spirit of the JCPOA, will be a force to reckon with in the Middle East as they're able to use money from oil reserves and buy equipment and become a nuclear power over the next decade. But right now, they are, we, a simple warning by the United States would be enough. And, and they need to hear that. And what about you, Eric? Isn't this, I'm playing devil's advocate up here as, as moderator as well. I mean, isn't this just a distraction from the main US objective, which is destroying ISIS and would? 
well, therefore be better without having without uh, tensions that are now growing between uh, potentially uh, Kurdish and, and Shia militia? Yeah. Uh, no, it's not a distraction. The goal, uh, I think, you know, the defeat of ISIS, and this is not the first time that somebody has argued this, but uh, the defeat of ISIS, I think, is too narrowly defined an objective, that the goal for the U.S. policy in the region should be the reconstitution of some semblance of security and political order, which works the region as it is. Without that, uh, all of our military efforts against ISIS and whatever comes after ISIS will not, um, will not produce the strategic outcomes that we seek. Um, and so what we need to be thinking about as well is trying not to recreate the political and lack of security conditions which led to the rise of ISIS in the first place and instead take an active interest in veiling ourselves of the opportunities on the ground to actually build up governing structures and political structures which can help protect vulnerable populations, not only in the Kurdish, in the Shia, and in the Sunni Arab areas of Iraq, but elsewhere. So no, this is not a distraction in the least. This is actually what the, what our properly understood strategic objective to be uh, should be. And when you look out across the Greater Levant, we're quickly losing our areas of opportunity to find partners on the ground with which we can work with. Um, uh, and Kurdistan in Iraq is one of those areas where we have many, many medium and long-range opportunities, and we should avail ourselves of that right now. Another large neighbor we haven't talked about yet is Turkey and, and their reaction to the, to, to the referendum. And um, um, my sense was during our trip that there was um, also a little bit of surprise there in that, that because there's very normally tight, good links with, with Erdogan's uh, Turkey. And they also came out very sort of strongly against, although a lot of it sort of might be just bluster because they haven't perhaps taking that many really sort of step to, um, to necessarily curb trade or what's, um, Eric, uh, what's your sense on that as well, how the, the Turkish reaction will unfold in the short run and sort of longer run? Yeah, I actually have a quote from uh, Turkish President Erdogan. He said, if Barzani and the Kurdish regional government do not go back on this mistake, he's referring to the referendum, as soon as possible, they will go down in history with the shame of having dragged the region into an ethnic and sectarian war. One could imagine a Kurdish interlocutor saying, well, enough about yourself, Mr. Turkish President. Um, but um, uh, I think it is a lot of bluster. I think uh, the Turkish president was, um, was speaking those words uh, largely because uh, he needs to maintain the support of the ultranationalists, which he has... Uh, uh, needed ever since uh, the failed parliamentary uh, elections in Turkey back in 2016. Um, what is also true, however, is that um, the realities have changed. The era in which the regional states, including the Baghdad-based regime, Iran and Turkey, could effectively collaborate with one another and seek to asphyxiate Kurdish political uh, aspirations, I think that that's over. Now, I don't want to speak too soon because there is still an opportunity if the U.S. You know, pulls back uh, for these states to find a way to cooperate with one another to really inflict quite a bit of harm on, on the Kurds uh, in Iraq. Nonetheless, the Kurds have built up a considerable amount of uh, capacity, uh, both military capacity and economic resilience. They have friends as well in Turkey, including in the AKP government. 
Um, and Turkey cannot act unilaterally to shut off the Kurdish pipeline going through uh, and Kurdish oil that's being uh, shipped out of Turkey. Why? In part because of a very strategic deal made between the KRG and the Russian government. Um, uh, Russia has an interest in seeing uh, the oil that it has arranged to flow out of Kurdistan to continue flowing, and Erdogan is going to find it very, very difficult to unilaterally move to stop that, um, because I believe that the Kremlin will oppose it. Um, uh, the other thing, too, is uh, collusion between regional states against these particular Kurdish aspirations is also going to be very difficult because of the underlying competition between them. Uh, or between various factions in each of those states. That's not going away anytime soon. And so I don't see, uh, I don't see the bluster that is coming from uh, these regional states as being something that they're going to be act, able to act upon anytime soon, uh, particularly if the United States does not um, uh, pull back. You mentioned Russia briefly, and I think that's another actor we should introduce into the debate and, 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 and throughout there. I mean, we came just after uh, Rushneft had concluded these big sort of oil deals in uh, Kurdistan, and the Russian position of the, on the referendum was, uh, at least the, the Kurd choice is very sort of balanced. It, it both talked about their, the official foreign ministry statement of national aspirations of, of the Kurds, but they'd also have a line of Iraq about Iraqi's territorial integrity. Um, so I, I think to a large degree, what we heard was that this was the type of uh, statement they would have preferred the U.S. to have a sort of one that, that, uh, that more hedged. And um, I don't yet come to a conclusion what could Russia's role be in all this, but of course, Russia with the quick and, and uh, move into uh, Syria a couple of, of years back that's both military and politically has positioned themselves into the first rank. It is, of course, interesting as well if you have uh, Russia sort of moving closer to um, the Iraqi Kurds and, and what that could mean. I think one of our doctors said, uh, well, with Russia first comes economy and then follows politics. So. We'll see how that precisely play out. I'm not sure the Russians might know yet because it can also depend on, on development in, in, in Syria and, and what they really want out of their regional uh, strategy. But it's definitely something to, um, to be followed, the, the Russian role. Yeah. yeah what's interesting about, about Russia, uh, remember Prime Minister Maliki, the former Prime Minister Maliki, went to Moscow to visit Putin. And uh, I listened to Sputnik Radio the day afterwards. <laughs> and the first thing they, they said was, they had three academics on, one from Tehran, one from Moscow, one from Baghdad. And the first question asked was, how soon can this new defense pact? And we haven't seen anything formalized yet, but, but it, there's an there's a, there's a expectation that at some point, Russia can be invited in to, be, to, to form some sort of a defense pact with Baghdad. And uh, the first question asked was, how soon can we exit the Americans? So these windows are closing, these, these opportunities to, as we, as we look at the, the impacts of the referendum and we see how we're going to play with Baghdad, we're, op, we're almost operating from a sense that we're going to be able to stay there for a long time and be able to weigh in on this. And I think that window's closing. <clears throat> and the interesting thing about it is, so the Kurdish referendum was supposed to hurt um, Prime Minister Abadi. Prime Minister Abadi was hurt before the Kurdish referendum because the highest polling candidate right now is Hadi Al-Amri, who is the leader of Badr Corps, 
who was also the leader of the Hashid al-Shabi, who was Qasem Soleimani's number one lieutenant. He's doing so well that people I know, when we worked in Iraq in 07, 8, 9, and 10 in the National Security Council, are saying that Hadi al-Amri is not as bad as Mohandas, who's the leader of Qatab Hezbollah, and Qais Ghazali, the leader of Asab Ahul Haq. Well, of course, he's not as bad as those two gentlemen who killed Americans, but he is Qasem Soleimani's go-to guy, number one guy. So as we look to Russia, Russia securing oil rights in northern Iraq right now, Iran securing oil rights in northern Syria right now, it wouldn't be surprising to me to see, to see Russia <clears throat> start training, start equipping the Iraqi army, but also Russia, like you said, economy before policy. Russia is also filling a gap where we're exiting. We have, we have the Saudis going to Moscow for the first time. You have everyone courting Moscow as the U.S. exits in its traditional role of, of guarantor, especially for, for the Sunnis of the Middle East. So these are all opportunities for, for Iran and Russia, especially as we, we take these positions that they view as weak and Kurds, uh, Kurdistan's enemies view as green lights to do things. Yeah. Follow-up question to, the, uh, to that, Mike, would be on the internal Iraqi politics going towards the elections in the begin early beginning of next year. Right, right. Where, um, which was another uh, sort of U.S. objection is that there's basically undermined a body that the, the U.S. has worked tightly with in the, the ISIL coalition and um, some of the Kurdish replies. We got to that while we were in, in the region where that that was already happening, that a body um, uh, wasn't, and, and somebody like Amri, as you were mentioning, stood a much better fighting chance of, of, of winning next year, and then it didn't detract. But at least it's, it's worth a discussion. How, how, do you, how do you see that, the impact on Iraqi uh, politics towards the parliamentary election, and linked where Eric can jump in, and how much leverage does that give Baghdad as well for before the parliamentary elections even generally going into negotiations with, with the Kurds on this? Real quick, what I would, what I would say is, if, if a body remains prime minister, it won't be because of the United States, it will be because Iran is okay with a continued uh, role that he's playing as long as Hadi al-Amri has, has a position. Uh, the interesting thing about Hadi al-Amri pulling as high as he is, as he's pushing everybody to his position, it's kind of like an American election where everybody goes to Bernie Sanders free college when you're running against a Republican. So the number one platform issue for, for Iraqi candidates, not the number one, but in the top three is how soon we can exit the United States from Iraq. And, and my concern is with this administration, the Trump administration is also soundbite before policy maybe. Um, Daesh is being defeated. You know, the Mosul operation was a success. I went to Mosul, the Mosul operation was not a success. Uh, we basically destroyed 60% of the city for four to 6,000 ISIS. And I was sitting next to somebody who, who asked me, well, isn't that the right thing to do? And I said, it's not the right thing, it's the easy thing to do. The right thing to do is to do it differently. Uh, you don't destroy cities like Ramadi, destroyed 80% of it's destroyed, exit a population of 500,000 to kill 1,600 ISIS fighters. That's not, that's not the way our generals and our, our officers that are being groomed to be generals, when they go to war colleges, we learn economy of force, we learn combined ops, we learn counterinsurgency, we learn different things. But <clears throat> when I say we, I shouldn't say we, I was never at that level, but they. <laughs> but the thing about 
that, that platform, how soon can you exit the United States? This administration could say, we've defeated ISIS after Huija, we're out. After Raqqa and Derazor, we've defeated ISIS, we're out. And cede those two countries to that external influence from Iran, the internal politics. My, one of my biggest concerns, as it tilts back to the Kurdish issue, is that the language you're hearing out of this administration and out of the State Department is, if Iraq uses force against the Kurds, it, it's an internal issue. That is very concerning to me. There's a difference in using your military to go into Ramadi and Mosul to exit ISIS. That's different when using your military to go into the Kurdish regional government spaces to punish a people for holding a vote. And that's concerning. And Eric, over to you. How do you see the leverage on, like, yeah, how much wiggle room is there on the Iraqi side to even really negotiate with, with well, the Kurds? I think it's important to acknowledge that after the referendum, what the Kurds have said that they want and have shown, shown in fact, that they do want this through their actions is they want an orderly, peaceful, open-ended negotiation with Baghdad um, to come to new terms. Uh, whether that means Kurdistan out of Iraq or in a confederation, we will see uh, through the course of those negotiations. Now, the question is, who will the Kurds face in Baghdad? Right now, uh, when you talk to the Kurdish leadership in a sort of informal polling, they will say that uh, the Abadi government is probably the best that they're going to get. Um, uh, Abadi and many of the people around him uh, fought with the Kurds against the Saddam Hussein tyranny. Uh, they're friends. Um, uh, and they're also willing to concede, we're told, uh, at a private level, that Iraq is dysfunctional uh, and that the Kurdish uh, aspirations um, are... Uh, are understandable. Um, uh, now, I think that an orderly and peaceful uh, negotiation can take place, particularly if the United States were to take an active role in working with the two parties. Um, but the reality is, as well, uh, is that uh, Iraq will have elections in April of 2018. And it is quite possible, particularly if the U.S. continues to withdraw diplomatically, that we will see the return either of Maliki or perhaps even, as has been signaled by the U.S. in recent weeks, uh, we might see the rise of uh, uh, Hari al-Amri as the new prime minister of Iraq. I think in either one of those scenarios with Maliki or Hadi al-Amri in charge, um, uh, you're going to see a very, very, very uh, uh, pro-Iranian, uh, Iran-aligned government in Baghdad, which is likely going to pursue a very aggressive policy with respect to Kirkuk. Um, and I think that that would ruin the possibility for constructive negotiations between Erbil and Baghdad. Uh, I think that if the United States doesn't act now to prevent that from coming about, then we will see a greater likelihood of a hard partition of the country next year. Thanks. I'll now uh, open it up to uh, questions. You are almost already there before I, I manage to. We'll have um, so people walking around. So the first gentleman here with uh, with the paper. Thank you very much. Um, I hope more people listen to some of the uncomfortable facts, shall we say, that that, uh, that you bring to the table. I I wanted to ask two questions. One, perhaps, to dive deeper into the inter-Kurdish dynamics, and um, and then the second, looking forward. And I'm sorry, I'm Alexander Kravitz from Insight. 
Um, I, I noticed from the pictures you you, you spoke obviously to um, you spoke to PUK, and I'm wondering if they gave you if there were any nuances. I mean, they they weren't, shall we say, as enthusiastic about the um, about the referendum going forward. They all came together, as you, as you noticed, and I wonder if there were any kind of you know sort of what the nuances were there. Uh, I'm curious if you met with any of the not for now campaign folks. That's you know in terms of the inter-Kurdish dynamics. And going forward, I wonder if you could give us any insight into the upcoming elections on November 1st, the uh, presidential and parliamentary elections. Thank you. you want to take the election question? Yeah, I mean, um, I would link the election question and and the answer to POK. I think where we saw clearly. Um, a sort of divergence was precisely on that question of when the election should be, that, that PUK, both because of internal and, and splintering uh, of the party into, with, uh, with uh, new groups forming, there is not a big interest in, in, in quick elections now and that they should be uh, postponed. And uh, several said to us in confidence, don't come back if you want to do look at elections, come back early in November, there will not be an, an election. So, so the most likely would be that it would be postponed um, a little bit, and, and PUK in particular had an, an interest in, uh, in that, and uh, in postponement. And you heard some of the same arguments that others would have put against the referendum, saying you shouldn't do the referendum now, you're fighting ISIS, they're refugees, it's a difficult situation. Those are precisely sort of the same arguments we then got bandied back on, on, on the upcoming elections. It's a difficult time. There are all these things, um, outside factors that are tough on, on, on Kurdistan. And uh, I think it's important there to say if, if you uh, both manage to uh, do a referendum, then you should, of course, also, if, if you want to move credibly towards independence, also have the internal governing structure there, where election is one part of that. And uh, so, um, so I think that's also important for the international society to keep a tap on, uh, on that and say uh, uh, that elections at least shouldn't be postponed for, um, uh, for that long. I think that there were, uh, particularly in Suleymaniyah province and really spread out throughout the greater Kurdistan region, legitimate reservations in the lead up to the referendum uh, not because Kurds didn't aspire to independence, but because the um, the political crisis in the region uh, and concerns over lack of governance and lack of government reform um, had led a lot of people to believe that independence, if achieved, would only last for a short period of time. And so there were, I think, some legitimate arguments made that people said, um, well, we need to really invest in building up our governing institutions, and then we should have this conversation about independence. Um, those arguments faded as the referendum drew closer, and now there is much greater, there is a strong sense of political unity across the region. The challenge going forward, I think, for President Barzani and others is how to, as I said earlier, how to challenge that political energy and unity into a concrete plan for building up real governing institutions that can solve the political crisis in Kurdistan. That is an element of, for, uh, that is a key priority, I think, for Kurdish security going forward. Why? We've talked a lot about how uh, elements in the neighborhood who are hostile to the Kurds might not 
have an interest in taking a direct action against the Kurds, but they would be interested and are conspiring actively as we speak to take indirect action toward the Kurds, uh, to undermine uh, their, their, their unity and, and their stability. Um, the only way to defend against that is through building up long-term resilience, and that comes through governance, among other things. Now, there are visions of federating the greater Kurdistan region, which I think is by 2020, uh, creating local parliaments. Um, and that will begin to, I think, break away some of the hidebound politics that have defined the intra-Kurdish, intra-KRG relationship between KDP and PUK going forward. It will allow a new generation of politicians to reflect the, the local concerns of Kurdistan in, in, in the national governing arrangement and help to alleviate some of the pressures that people have been experiencing. I think the United States needs to take an active interest in helping to see that process go forward. In addition to that, I mean, there is a political crisis going on. It's taking the KRG and the fundamental political compact that brought the KRG together at the end of the Kurdish civil war in the 1990s. That's taken a huge beating since the rise of ISIS. Uh, the economic crisis has basically meant that the parties have, have had to have increasingly jostled and fought with one another for control of resources, among other things. Um, that compact needs to be rebuilt. The political basis of the KRG government, I think, needs to be reconstituted uh, going forward. And the only way to do that, I think, is to actually focus on building institutions. Um, and that means focusing on integrating the Peshmerga units, integrating the internal Asayish uh, security units, making sure that they operate according to rule of law. These are all long-term projects and programs. Uh, we've, I think, missed uh, a good decade here in the United States of sort of really making an effort to support Kurds on all sides that have an interest in seeing that happen. And I think going forward, we need to take the long view and make sure that these kinds of initiatives go forward. I had the gentleman over here. I'm uh, Peter Humphrey, uh, intel analyst and a former diplomat. Isn't it the greater geopolitical problem, um, the, the sort of hypocrisy we demonstrate when we fail to support uh, self-determination? I've had Catalan say to us, you hypocritical SOPs, how dare you? How dare you take these positions when you support independence of Tibet? So, so can't, can't we sort of step back and look at the big picture of what our country actually stands for and not suffer the damage of, of siding, you know, with you must be chained to these other guys for the rest of human history because we say so. Isn't that wrong? Isn't that hurting our brand? We'll let our resident Catalan handle that. <laughs> Thanks for that question. I've actually, I am, uh, yes, I've been torn on this. I mean, I'm... Uh, actually, on, on Catalonia, I'm, I'm, this was an illegal referendum. It was clear in the Constitution that there is no basis for it. So, um, so on that one, on the Kurdish one, I think the legal case is, is more unclear because there's no provision necessarily against it. And, and you do also have a very good Kurdish argument that the Iraqi government, which they, they handed us out at, and talked about at every meeting, has an example of have breaching the Iraqi constitution 55 times and haven't followed up on a lot of constitutional provisions, so as Article 140 surrounding Kirkuk and um, even though there's so. So I think there's a different 
case under the, the, the legal order, but I mean, under the international law, you don't just have the right to sort of um, to succeed. Why not? Uh, because then South Carolina could declare independence tomorrow. And, and <laughs> we, we probably have more influence in South Carolina. Yeah. And um, sorry, now I lost my. I had this gentleman here. Is it the general or both? Um, first row, second row. Uh, second row. And I'll take <coughs> first row as well. Um, I'd, I'd like to ask a question about your assertion on the outcome of the upcoming Iraqi election. I don't see, and, and a follow-up question as well. Number one, I don't see the numbers favoring Hadi Al-Amri. The obvious, Butter is obviously not going to get the numbers out of Kurdistan. He will gain very, very few votes, if any, out of IIP and the Sunni groups, and probably get no numbers out of the Sutterists in the South. So make for me the argument that Hadi Al-Amri could get the numbers in the Iraqi election to become prime minister. And then I have a follow-up question, if you don't mind. Well, it's just polling. We're just going on Iraqi polling, so I would just push you towards polling in Iraq that shows Hadi Lamari leading all candidates. Sure. And, and Hil Hillary past, Clinton won the popular vote, but the Electoral College overturned that. Well, I the hope there's that kind of discourse after Hadi Lamari's prime minister, where people are saying that he's an illegitimate prime minister, that it would actually be a good position for Iraq. But we're, we're talking about him polling at 65%. That's 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 big. There's a widespread perception that his political star is rising. Whether he can pull off the election win or not is another question. No, I agree. Yeah. And, and the second question I have has to do with this whole strategic policy that we have in the Middle East. Michael, particularly you, are arguing that we are losing more and more influence in the region. Yes. Uh, I don't see how. While I'm agnostic on the issue, I'm I'm. I'm trying to understand the argument. Your argument is somehow we're losing influence, yet your recommendation in here is that we make a strategic readout in Kurdistan and ignore what's happening all around. Basically losing the support of the Turks, losing the support of Baghdad, losing whatever support and affiliation we have Iran and certainly with Syria. So I'm just trying to understand your logic that number one you say, let's go all in on Kurdistan uh, yet at the same time, we've got to build influence in the region by thumbing our policy of in the region by going against about the only policy issue that the region can agree upon. Well, in my experience, so you, you were a general officer, so my job is a, was exactly, and I was an intel officer. So my my our past relationship would be one where I would come to you, have two minutes to make a an argument, and you would say yes or no. In this case, it's, it's different. Everything is separate here. So we don't have leverage with Baghdad. Supporting the Kur Kurdish referendum would actually give us leverage with Baghdad. Leverage. Not going all in, but leverage with Baghdad. Uh, we've ceded it. I mean, if we had leverage with Baghdad, how is it that that uh, Abu Mehdi al-Mohendis is the commander of the Hashid al-Shabi, a designated terrorist from Kitab Hezbollah, is actually in the Ministry of Interior, the U.S.-backed, supported, and funded Ministry of Interior is paying a salary to a designated terrorist. Where's the U.S. leverage there? How is it that Hadi al-Amri is leading the Hashid al-Shabi? There's, 
I know he's worked with General Barbera in the past. I know he, he said he wasn't the Border Corps commander. But I guess my, my argument is we haven't used U.S. leverage, and, and trust and leverage are two different things. It's very hard for us to reestablish trust with the Kurds after this referendum. It's hard for us to reestablish trust with the Sunnis after the awakening and the Sons of Iraq. It's very hard for us to to establish trust with the uh, Syrian rebels that we train in the fight against ISIS because we keep ceding trust and leverage to Iran and Russia. And I'm just speaking as a, a person who believes in U.S. power, <laughs> believes in U.S. leverage. We should be able to say no. I mean, we, we have a $18 trillion economy, yet we don't have more influence over Baghdad than Iran does. And I don't, I don't care if they're neighbors. Saudi Arabia is a neighbor of Iraq. Jordan's a neighbor of Iraq. Syria is a neighbor of Iraq. Turkey is. We should be able to get in there and use leverage. And that's all I'm saying, Joe. I know you're, you've been committed to this for a long time and you're agnostic. I, I am taking a position because I think you're not hearing this in a lot of think tanks. You're not hearing this argument in a lot of places. And as a decision maker, I've always found it best as an intelligence officer to tell a general something he doesn't know, something he can have in his back pocket that he can use. Yes, sir. Just um, a follow up to, to Mike. I mean, as, as a former diplomat here on, on the stage, I mean, I would say there's an intermediate position. I mean, the U.S. has come out again, so that's sort of the, the situation as, as it is. You could take a sort of more active role in mediation now and particularly work towards the Confederation model that we talked about, whether there's some opportunity in that, also because that could lead to the whole question of Sunni inclusion as a, as a model there, and you wouldn't necessarily have to sort of, and if that doesn't work at all, you could end up where Mike and Eric is already, I'm saying then you would, you would say it's better to cut your losses strategy and say the fact that you have in Iraqi Kurdistan a pretty loyal ally and partner to the U.S., that's better than, than sort of dealing with a Tehran dom and nom dominated Baghdad. But I think that decision you could, diplomatically you could have a strategy where you would not have at all to make that decision yet. You would basically still try to see what would be feasible, but take a much stronger role behind the scenes in the mediation efforts. And then I had this gentleman over here. Real quick, just real quick on, on I love being told, Mike, you're wrong. You said this stuff was going to happen, and none of it happened. And to the question earlier where the person said, I hope somebody's listening, uh, it's the Warner's dilemma. When you tell the decision maker something to pay attention to, patterns and indicators that show a, a bad course of action, the most dangerous course of action is on its way, and it doesn't happen, I'm wrong to be the guy who said something's going to happen and it didn't happen. Hopefully it's because we presented facts, indicators, and warnings to decision makers to keep it from happening. The other thing, too, is there are far more pragmatic political thinkers in Baghdad and in Ankara who want to come to terms with the reality of what's going on in northeastern Iraq, who also, I think, uh, in the course of discussing with them, will come to see that the advance of Kurdish self-governance is in the interests of enlightened governments in the region itself. And if we want to build influence and reconstitute influence, those are the partners with which we need to seek to empower and work over the long range. I don't think, despite the bluster from the ruling regimes in the region that we've seen in the last week, that opposition to the Kurds is a common policy. I think that can be challenged and must be challenged diplomatically and through American action as well. We go over here. Yes, uh, thank you for your presentation. Uh, Ethan Cohen, my name. I'm from the uh, Public uh, International Law and Policy Group. 
um, coordinator at the Kurdish Studies Network and uh, uh, editorial member of the peer-reviewed Journal of Kurdish Studies. Um, my views and comments do not represent anything institutional. Um, Eric, you have earlier mentioned that, um, uh, quote unquote, your analysis have been grossly wrong um, in, in regard to the commentators uh, internationally. Uh, allow me to assess why, because that is a major problem that we have around the world when it comes to assessing uh, the policies surrounding Kurdistan. Uh, in many, what we see is that many times um, states have adopted what colonizers have implemented in Kurdistan, which has not been divided neither by the Ottoman Empire nor by the Safavids, but by the British and the French. Now, unfortunately, the United States, although when it is as pragmatic as possible, sometimes they tend to adopt these policies. So for instance, we hear many times Kurds are not united. And that is the core element why commentators were wrong in, their, uh, in, in, in assessing the referendum. There is no such thing that Kurds are not united. There is a concept that we are different when it comes to party ideologies. <clears throat> However, since the past 150 years, there is a concept of Kurdayeti. And I think that is the main failure, that people do not understand that there is a concept of Kurdayeti, a political movement since 150 years, which didn't start in South Kurdistan, West, or wherever, which started in Kurdistan, in the heart of Kurdistan, and instigated 30 armed conflicts. Yeah. As long as we don't look at it from the perspective of Kurdayeti, I don't think we will ever be in the position of assessing uh, um, the foreign policies surrounding in our, our Kurdistan. I agree. Uh, the traditional Western approach to the Middle East, um, certainly for the last 100, 150 years, as you put it, has normally looked at the Middle East from the perspective either of the Arabic-speaking world or the uh, Tehran-based one, Persia, or from Turkey. I think because of demographic and political changes that have taken place on the ground, it is imperative for Western analysts and policymakers to also understand the region from Kurdistan on out. And understanding the history of Kurdi Yeti is important. But that history of the Kurdish national movement is not just a history of better organized outside actors imposing their borders on the Kurds. It's also a history of the Kurds failing to evolve institutions of their own and overcoming their own internecine internal conflicts and disagreements, which the better organized outside powers for the last hundred years have used against them. Um, there has been an awakening in the Kurdi-Yeti movement, in the Kurdish national movement, I think. Uh, and it's been expressed most clearly, I think, in Iraqi Kurdistan, in northeastern, in South Kurdistan. Um, the fact that they've made, they've turned this revolutionary movement into a functioning administration, a proto-state, uh, opens up the possibility that, that this could, in fact, be a lasting reality in the region. And when you consider that order across the greater Levant has broken down, there's been a half collapse or a full collapse of the Arabic-speaking regimes, at least. And when you also consider the demographic tra trends that are taking place across the region, the Kurds are no longer in the mountains. They're in cities. Um, the numbers across greater Kurdistan amongst ethnic Kurds and Kurdish 
Spanish-speaking households is growing. Uh, fertility rates are quite high. Their numbers are swelling. This is bringing enormous people power to bear on what's left of the existing state-based order. And anybody who's interested in the long-term question of how to reconstitute order and stability in that region needs to take that new strategic and political reality into consideration. So yes, it's imperative, as you, I think, have suggested it, to understand the region from the Kurdish perspective. Uh, uh, and I think there have been some great strides made in the United States in recent years to do that. Good, hello. <coughs> Uh, thank you for the panel. Hillel Fratkin of the Hudson Institute. Um, you made a very powerful case uh, for uh, the propriety of the referendum and the foolishness on our part of having uh, at, at opposed it. Uh, as I believe someone said, you could have, we could have at least been agnostic. Uh, the referendum is taking place, and some of the dangers that were uh, raised about what would happen uh, have so far not materialized. It's, of course, only a few days, but um, uh, a number of things that have happened. They may have happened a little bit after you left, so perhaps uh, you're not in a full position to respond, but let me just list uh, what has happened. Um, the Turks haven't invaded uh, Kurdistan, uh, neither have the Iranians. Abadi is in France, meeting with Macron, uh, has said he wants to negotiate, and Macron has said he would like to mediate. Uh, the Russians have said that they do not um, favor a cutoff of the oil pipeline that goes through Turkey. Um, so far, we haven't spoken, and we haven't uh, taken an assessment of the, both the referendum itself, its success, and these rather diminished reactions. I wonder now what you would suggest the United States government could do. Uh, maybe not a 180, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, something a little bit more that meet that takes these this new information into account. I mean. My short reply, as I put in the working paper, would be that there's an option. You don't necessarily have to go back and, and do a 180, but there's an option now to try to push behind the scenes in negotiations, and particularly, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the idea of if confederation could be a model that could also solve other problems in, uh, in Iraq, that could be a way of bridging, sort of, from the U.S. point of view, the different policy positions. You would still have a sort of nominal Iraqi territorial integrity. Uh, you would potentially find a solution towards um, Kurdish-Arab um, uh, condominium. And it could also be a way of, of sort of working with Sunni uh, inclusion as well. I mean, this on paper sounds very good. Might be in practice be much more difficult. Not only what you would say to recommend for the U.S. government, but perhaps what you would recommend to the many people, especially Eric knows in Kurdistan, about how to proceed with us, uh, what they should be asking from us and what we should be willing to uh, afford them, if, if anything. Well, 
I mean, there there is enormous room for um, uh, a long-term conversation between the United States and the and the regional government in in Iraqi Kurdistan, uh, focused on the buildup, as I said earlier, of their governing institutions, their educational institutions, their military capability, their capacity to, to, to operate as a professional, modernized military force in their particular part of the greater Levant. Um, there's tremendous support in Kurdistan, desire, as I said, on all sides of Kurdistan, uh, on all, in all the parties for that kind of conversation. Uh, but I think there hasn't been sufficient political will in the United States to do that going forward. As we do that, um, there is, as Jonas said, it's critical for us to, uh, I think, involve ourselves in the negotiations which will be taking place between Erbil and in Baghdad um, for a orderly and peaceful divorce or for a new settlement in which there's joint custody, for example, over Kirkuk. Uh, for any of those positive scenarios to take place, I think the Kurds are going to need uh, and our allies in Baghdad are going to need uh, uh, American or allied um, political coverage uh, so that they can have this conversation and that me successful mediation can take place. Um, I think it's also very important for us to talk to Ankara um, uh, because their periphery, as you know, um, uh, it's collapsed and it has become now a, uh, a region in which uh, a whole variety of powers, the Russians and the Iranians in particular, who may have ill designs on Turkish security and on the Turk, what's left of the Turkish Republic, that they will use this as uh, a launching pad for their own designs on Turkey. Um, and to push that out, uh, for Turkey to re-secure their periphery, um, they're going to need uh, responsible Kurdish allies um, that are able to exercise sovereignty and control over their, um, their polities. Uh, and we need to begin, uh, in, I think, realizing that inner bill. Uh, cooperation with Turkey. In the here, this young lady here. Hi, Diana Bia with American Foreign Policy Council. And my question revolves around, um, I guess, the Sunni support for the Kurdish referendum that they have expressed, that they expressed before the referendum took place. If the negotiations with Baghdad were to not be a success and the Kurdish state, Kurdish state were to be established, do we see that as a solution maybe for the Iranian influence and power in the region? To establish a Sunni area as well? or uh, Establishment of a Kurdish state as a solution for the Iranian influence in the region. Good. I think it was, if it was came out of sort of unilateral declaration of independence, it would of course face the big obstacle that who would recognize it. I mean, if it didn't come out of negotiation with, with Baghdad, you would have like you had in, in sort of different case of, of, of state building like Kosovo, where basically only, at least initially, a limited amount of, of countries recognized uh, the country. So that might be, it's a bit hypothetical now, so I mean, it's difficult to know whether that would be, but it would at least be difficult. And it would also for the US sort of push a lot of, uh, of the policy again to the fore if you had to choose, and particularly if it's something that wasn't in sort of based on a long-term uh, negotiation with uh, Baghdad? I tend to think, too, that the univer un unilateral declaration of a Kurdish state 
is likely going to be very violent um, uh, and protracted violence. Um, but I also think that that would be a result of Iran's growing power in the region and the failure of peaceful negotiations between Baghdad and the Erbil-based government. Um, so I think our goal now must be to prevent that from happening. There, there are, I, the Kurds themselves will insist that there are people in Baghdad, in the Abadi government and elsewhere, that they can have a negotiation with going forward. And that is our opportunity now. Gentlemen here in the front, who's also been, a lot of people have been waiting patiently and taking out their hand every time. I'm trying to divide it somewhat justly around the room. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Bo Wilcox. I'm from the Osgood Center for International Studies. And my question pertains to you, Michael. Um, you mentioned earlier about the, I should say, the imprecise operations of the military within Iraq. What is the current drive behind that? I mean, with these continued military operations, less and, or more and more dissent against the U.S. will occur. I mean, is it just because we were in Iraq and now we just need to continue the operation? Or moreover, is this the only thing we can do for now? Talking about the operations against ISIS? or yeah, yeah. I mean, ISIS is something everybody should be able to get behind. Iran actually makes the case that we are, that they are an ally in this war against ISIS, and if we don't walk away from the JCPOA or the president doesn't decertify it on October 12th, that they will continue to be an ally against ISIS. My criticism of, of, of U.S. advisors in, embedding in with a, a force is the same concerns that General Petraeus echoed uh, early June 2014. The United States should not be the Air Force for an Iranian proxy military and Iranian militias in the Hashid al-Shabi. Um, again, uh, those of us that saw the surge work or those of us that saw Fallujah 04 and 05 fail know that you don't punish Sunni towns, destroy them, exit a population center, and call it success. If you look at uh, attack trends in Matrix, you're still seeing ISIS able to do things in Ramadi, in Tikrit, in Fallujah, in Baghdad. They're still, they're still uh, targeting our contracted, uh, unexploded ordnance crews in western Mosul with mortars and, and pox shots from, from rifles. So. <clears throat> My criticism is that we've never conducted an effective operation in Iraq by doing something once and saying we're done. It's the whack-a-mole theory. But, you know, it's this strategy to defeat ISIS. So the day after ISIS, we, we argue always, or we've said, we've said throughout this campaign, the day after ISIS is, is literally the day before ISIS. So we have a, a, a further uh, disenfranchised Sunni population, more distrustful of Baghdad than ever, more distrustful of the United States than ever. And, you know, in 07, it was a conspiracy that Iran was in Iraq. And now you actually can see Qasem Soleimani and his lieutenants walking around Daizi, walking around in Baghdad, uh, doing uh, victory parades after, after clearing areas. So everything has changed, and uh, we, we just need to understand what that means. We need to understand that... <coughs> With what we've done, we've basically ensured that, I mean, ISIS has already moved to the Al-Qaeda model, that this will continue. It'll continue in Syria also. And by it continuing, it actually benefits Iran. It actually gives them a reason to stay in Iraq and Syria. So that's, that's the criticism, is a strategy to defeat ISIS at, at every turn is actually given territory over and influence over to Iran with every area cleared so far. 
happy to argue that with anybody over a beer sometime. Now down here in the front. I will, this is this is going to be a sort of our last question. I know there are a lot of people that, that wanted to that that's a good sign that there is a lively debate. I'll use my moderator's uh, privilege to hand it over to uh, the gentleman in the front that has a Kurdistani necktie um, around. So as to sort of to give you the last question, and it gives us the opportunity to give us the last word up here on the panel. Thank you. Uh, welcome back from Kurdistan. My question is, I, I'll make it simple. The Kurdistan, if uh, become independent, and it will be, uh, it be best friend to USA. And it's interest of USA to support in, uh, independent Kurdistan, not uh, support uh, Iranian regime. That's uh, my opinion. I'm a Kurd, and I'm proud of it. And I'm from Texas, too. So I'm a Kurd and Texan. <laughs> and, but that's, but uh, for USA, I think, my, in my opinion, the best thing to do Change the envoy, U.S. envoy right now. Kurt don't trust him anymore. So you need a new fresh man to go negotiate with Baghdad and Arbir right away. Otherwise, it'd be most, uh, Mullah is going to be more all over the country, not just in uh, Baghdad, but in Syria and other country too. Let me start by, I'm, I'm not Kurdish nor Texan, and so therefore play a little devil's advocate on it before I let it over to my two colleagues and, and, One from and Texas. say it, it also gives, if, if Kurdistan is independent without the solution somewhere with the neighbors, it also gives the U.S. suddenly huge, as you mentioned, and as an ally of security commitments, I mean, which is something that the previous administration, but also continuing this administration, a sudden wariness about the U.S. the way having commitments all over the world. So I'm, I'm not sh sure you would convince the American population that they needed to have a security commitment to, uh, to uh, Kurdistan for the, for the long term. But I'll leave it to my uh, colleagues also to jump in on that, um, the Americans on the panel. Well, there's, um, so I'm from, I'm from Texas. Um, my, my Kurdish name was Naki Barzan, so, so that's always a, that's a, a good name back in 2005. So back to the, to the current state. Um, the U.S. State Department, the U.S. Department of Defense, and, and actually believe that the Iranian presence in Iraq is exaggerated, that Iran doesn't have as much influence as people like myself say they do in the Iraqi security and intelligence forces. But they're very concerned about the land bridge, very concerned about the land bridge through Iraq. They're very concerned about Iraqi militias, but they continue to ignore the role that the Ministry of Interior and Defense actually play in facilitating Qasem Soleimani's uh, operations or basically the intended use of this land bridge. They're, they're exporting culpability. As we look to, to possibly designate the Revolutionary Guard Corps as a terrorist organization, they're going to be able to say, well, that's not us, that's the Iraqis that are doing this because a lot of these things are being reflagged with Iraqi flags. One of the biggest uh, complaints I got from Peshmerga generals as I visited uh, their defense lines over the last three years is ISIS is easy to defeat. And I heard this from Sunnis also, but it's, it's the Iranian militias that are difficult because the Iraqi militias that are backed by the IRGC carry Iraqi flags. And if we shoot at them because they shoot at us, we'll be looked at as treasonous. And that's an issue. So the more we um, see facts and evidence that the Revolutionary Guard Corps is actually using the Ministry of Defense and the Ministry of Interior to continue their operations, the more this 
the, the more our government will align with the Kurdish position that a lot of this, the reason for this referendum is because of the Iranian takeover of Iran. I mean, Marsoud Bazani said it, said it best. He said, we don't pick our prime minister, Iran does. We'll all, we always know that the prime minister of Iraq will be the one favored by Iran. And I think that's a problem for all Iraqis, Sunnis, Christians, Kurds, Shia nationalists. You know, they're opposed to this. And we need to hear more of those voices. And again, I, could, I would be a one Iraq guy tomorrow if a body said we want to reestablish the second and third Iraqi army divisions and make them uh, reflag Peshmerga units and bring back the Sunnis that Maliki kicked out. We want to make uh, the Iraqi army units north of Baghdad, Samarra, Karbala, um, more representative of the of the territory they actually operate in. And we want American support. We reject the creeping uh, bad power from Iran. And we also want to keep Russia out. Then, then the US is the best ally Iraq should have, not just the Kurds. But that isn't the case. Thanks. It's 1.33, so we will have to round up to a, to a close. It's been a, a great debate. Thanks to all of you for coming here to Hudson and, and participating and uh, making it such a lively debate. Hope to see you again soon. Thank you. Thank you much.